0: Thanks to Zapier for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Zapier is the easiest way to automate your work. It connects all your business software and handles work for you, so you can focus on the things that matter most. Try Zapier free by going to our special link, zapier.com. fool Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, September 23rd. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and sitting next to me here at the lovely Ritz-Carlton in Washington, D.C., my main man, certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, how was
1: your flight up? Not too bad, and I am winning in all three of my fantasy football leagues today. So it's a good Sunday. <laughs> well, hopefully that continues. It's
0: still early, uh, and, and for our listeners, we are pre-taping Monday's show today. Here it's Sunday, and uh, the reason why we're pre-taping is because we have our big event here. Uh, it is our Motley Fool Discovery event. We have about 400 or so members of our various Discovery services, as well as some uh, Motley Fool One members. Uh, we're Matt. You know, we'll get into what we're both doing here uh, on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, but first, let's go ahead and jump into uh, the, the. I think, the topic that was on everybody's mind last week. Uh, on Wednesday, the Fed announced uh, what was a widely expected quarter point rate cut, uh, and the committee cited the implications of global developments for the economic outlook as well as muted inflation pressures. In other words, it seems kind of like everything is ultimately going okay. They didn't see any reason to not give that cut to try to stoke uh, activity a little bit and and maybe keep the market uh, on its upward uh, trajectory. But what were your takeaways from this rate cut news other than the fact that your prediction for 2019 was somewhere in the neighborhood of raising
1: rates like once or twice, right? I know, and I know I've been calling for the Fed to not cut rates, <laughs> and it's not just because I had predicted it. I think it would be the right thing to do right. to stay put. It, it,
0: it was not as selfish, yeah. You were not being selfish.
1: Right, and and to be fair, it doesn't look like I'm alone in that. Um, it's worth noting that three out of the ten people who vote on these interest rate moves voted against the rate cut. Yeah, Two of them wanted to stay put, so I'm in— pretty decent company there <laughs> um, in addition to that the big the biggest takeaway that surprised the market was what's what's known as the dot plot um, that's where the fed issues their expectations of where they think rates are going to be at the end of 2019 2020 2021 and from a long-term basis before the meeting the market was expecting a median of about two more rate cuts including er, after this one in addition to um this year and the dot plot showing no more this year None in twenty twenty and actual a rate hike in twenty twenty one. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, but now I saw something. I mean, it sounded like at least there's the potential for one more rate cut this year. I mean, dot plot notwithstanding. I mean, do you feel like that's a possibility? Oh, yeah, and, that...
1: and take that with a grain of salt yeah. because the last dot plot that we got in July, or June rather, the last dot plot we got in June showed didn't show this rate cut. Right. So this is definitely an evolving situation. There's actually been a lot of movement at the Fed to get rid of the dot plot for that reason because you know, no one can predict the future, the Fed included. Yeah, um, and they're taking a data-driven approach, as they've said many times in their statement. And who knows what the data is going to be by the time the next meeting rolls around?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, to your point about data, um, I do think. I mean, you they talk about the consumer being in a good position, right? And I mean, unemployment is low. Wage growth could be better. I, I, I feel like, but you know, the, I was looking at the personal saving rate. And you know that's closing in on eight percent, which is is considerably better here. It's 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 on it's on the upward uh, trend, which is is obviously good. Consumers have more savings that that just gives them a little bit more uh, you know as far as choices, a little bit more security and whatnot. Um, and so it's nice to see that decisions are at least being made on that that type of data. It, it does feel like we're sort of in this unique situation where unemployment's great, wage growth isn't that great. I think people feel like things could be better, and maybe that's where this rate
1: cut really comes from. Right. I think a lot of it is political pressure, as much as I hate to say it. Yeah. Um, to be clear, the Fed's job is not to prop up the stock market, it's not to you know, do what the President wants, but the Fed has ears. The president has, he, or has said he wants zero or negative interest rates, like now. Yeah. So, which would mean a total of seven rate cuts from our current position uh, <laughs> to get to zero. <laughs> I don't think and, we're headed there. And he wants that today. Yeah. So. There's no, there's. I think that that had something to do with it. I think if you just look at the numbers, it's a lot easier to make a case for we don't need a rate cut than we're seeing in some of the Fed's language. I tend to
0: agree. I tend to agree. Well, real quickly, you know, you you mentioned the dot plot, and it seems like with this uh, finance stuff, we've always got our nerdy. Uh, sorts of uh, labels that we give things. We have dot plot, and in something else, listeners may have seen in in the headlines last week uh, was in regard to the repo market. And no, we're not talking about someone coming up there and repossessing your car. Uh, we're talking about something that actually does have to do with the way money moves through the system. And I think the concerns were at least a big bump up in the, in the rates of the repo market. Really quickly, Matt. I mean, is this just? This was a good headline. I don't know that there were any long. Term implications here?
1: Well, it kind of shows you how much, how little control the Fed actually has over interest rates. Okay. They have a lot of control, obviously, but so the repo market means when one party lends money to another in exchange for a little bit more back at a future date. So
0: it's helping some of these firms out of a cash crunch or just helping them with their cash flow. Think
1: of like overnight loans. If I loan you money today, $100 today, and you're going to give me $101 tomorrow, (laughs) it's usually a very slight difference. And it usually goes pretty in line with the federal funds rate, which right now is right around 2%. Um, shortly before the Fed meeting, we saw the repo market rate shoot up to about 5% overnight, and it still hasn't really normalized. So, it kind of shows that the Fed might not have as much control over interest rates than the market thinks.
0: Well, that makes sense. I mean, we'll keep an eye on it. But it does seem like it was a bit of an outlier. and. Um, again, you know, hey, if, if you were wondering what the repo market is, hopefully we shed a little bit of light that uh, on that for you today. But um, let's jump over into uh, another topic that we love, banks and payments. And there was a tweet uh, that you and I both saw last week. It's from Niraj Kapoor, at cricket99238. And he says, "I'm wondering what you guys thinking. Uh, what, wondering what you guys think is ailing Square. I still believe in the story for the long term, but just fail to understand the indifference this is getting compared to some of the to, to some of the other names like PayPal. Nothing seems obviously bad, so I request your input. Um, now, I mean, it, you look at Square. It, I mean, it, it's obviously a volatile stock this year to date." It's worth mentioning the stock is up three percent, so it's not like it's you know having a horrible year thus far. But it is down from highs, and I think we have some great expectations for for the company longer term. Is there something there, uh, you know, closer near term that, that makes you wonder what's going on here, Matt?
1: Yeah, well, up three percent is really underperforming the S and P this year. That's a very good point. Um, the obvious kind of generic answer is that the competitive market is increasing in the payment space. The, what I think it really boils down to is execution risk. For years and years square was just kind of increasing its revenue at like a 30 40 percent rate just on its core businesses. yeah now it's needing to add more components to that We just recently talked that they're about to roll out a stock trading app' um, they're, so every time they add another form of monetization, especially on their cash app customer base, it's likely to be a money loser at first sure. so to actually turn these into profit streams, there's a ton of execution risk involved and i think it's you're kind of seeing risk being priced into the stock more so than before when the growth was just reliant on their core payment processing and lending business i think that's a really good point i think that you're starting to see a little bit more of a of a
0: a psychology out there in the market where they're pulling back a little bit on the on that risk i mean you're seeing it in Everywhere from Uber and Lyft to companies like Square and a number of these different SaaS companies. I mean, at some point or another, you know, revenue growth is great, but there needs to be the profitability and the cash flow behind that. Um, and, and that that appetite for
1: risk ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Right. You don't see this much in like in a stock like PayPal, which is one sure. of your favorites, because they haven't really differentiated their business model as much as Square has. I would say they're still using kind of more expected ways of monetizing Venmo, for example. Yeah then they're, you're not seeing a PayPal stock trading app or a Bitcoin app, or they're not getting into, the, into and then out of the food delivery business. Yeah. And,
0: and, I mean, a much bigger company, financially far more stable, I mean, profitable, cash flow positive, all of these things. I mean, PayPal is, has really uh, come a long way in, in a fairly short amount of time, but I think a lot of that has to do with just the the development of this space. I mean, we are we are moving more towards electronic payments, and these companies need to bring the software to support. Uh, their systems. And so, yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with you, I feel like it's just really more of a risk thing than anything. There's not a company, there's not a business fundamental that has me concerned here. I mean, when you when you look through the earnings reports over the last three or four quarters, I mean, the numbers really tell a very good story. Um, it's just at some point, you need the fundamentals to support the stock valuation, and that's not there yet for Square.
1: Right. And um, remember, the, uh, Square peaked a little over $100 a share last mm. year. And the initial thing that set off the big decline was um, when they lost Sarah Fryer. Yeah, another yeah. big perceived risk. That, that she is, was the one yeah. who was, you know, the captain of the ship for, for in a lot of ways for Square. Yeah,
0: and they brought in Amrita Ahuja, who I feel like is the new CFO of the company. You know, she's still getting her feet under her, I think. But if you you listen to her on on the earnings calls and in the presentations, she certainly has a very good grip on the business and the mentality. That that I think Jack is using to run run the business and set this company up for longer term longer term success. So I do feel like they really uh, they found a great replacement for Sarah Fryer, and we were both a little concerned when she took off.
1: They did, but I mean, no matter how good Berkshire Hathaway does at replacing Warren Buffett, (laughs) you're still still replacing Warren Buffett. (laughs) Yeah. So it's that's just it. And I'm not saying it's a giant risk factor. I'm saying it's a big perceived risk to the market Mm -hmm. because she was the one who was laying out. Okay, we're going to be your one stop. Everything you need financial, you're going to be able to do in the Cash App. And she was the one kind of leading the charge on that step by step by step. We're going to be your, you know, your interest yielding deposit account. You're going to be your stock trading platform, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Um. So the loss of 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 her was the first big catalyst that sent Square over a cliff.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, but I think that. Uh... You know, it sounds like you and I both intend to, to hold on to our shares, um, still very excited for the future of this company. I haven't it, it, sold one. No, neither have I. Um, and talking, Speaking of the future of this company and other payments companies, let's let's use this subject to segue into another uh, good tweet we got from at the underscore Chantilly FR, uh, and he asks on Twitter, with the bank set to lose about $280 billion in payment revenue, What stops them from just purchasing a Square or a global payments networks? I'm sure investors would love the acquisition and they'll be able to avoid some of those losses. I don't think any company will be acquiring PayPal. And I think that's a really good question because if you ask yourself, you see a lot of these fintech companies that are up and coming. I mean, in PayPal, probably is right. PayPal at this at this point's a little bit too big. I think uh, it'd be it'd be tough to really uh, make that acquisition square, global payments network, something like a stripe that hadn't even gone public yet. Why do you feel why do you think we've we haven't seen very many headlines of banks interested in making these acquisitions?
1: Why do you think that's the case? Well, for one thing all these companies are not banks. Um, square is in the process of applying for some sort of banking license but a lot of them are, I mean, PayPal, Stripe, they're not banks. Right. There's a lot of regulatory risk as to what, and regulatory issues as to what banks can do and what they can't do within their business. So that's one thing reason that's probably preventing them from really looking at an acquisition. The other, Another thing, banks are really doing a good job of handling a lot of keeping up with technology in-house. Uh, we were talking before the show about how banks kind of banded together to create Zelle, which has been wildly successful. I think Zelle actually has a bigger payment volume than either venmo or cash app it's up there I remember that interview that we had with them on the show it's amazing the success they've had right so they're not doing doing a bad job of adapting to this technology but and the big takeaway that kind of brings me to is when you hear that the banks are going to be losing 280 billion dollars of revenue you're this isn't necessarily revenue that's going to be taken by someone else right this is a pricing pressure issue for example let's say right now a bank can get a three percent payment processing fee If competitive pressures drive that down to say 2% or even 1%, even if the banks are processing more and more volume, it's still a net loss of revenue. They're not necessarily losing market share or losing customers or anything like that. So it's not that Square and PayPal are taking that $280 billion out of their pocket, although as a Square shareholder, I wouldn't mind if they did. (laughs) But it's not like it's efficiency, it's It's money being, they're wringing that money out of the system. It's not that one's gaining and one's losing in equal amounts. Um, it's so – I don't see them – I see them handling it in-house. I think they built Zelle a lot cheaper than they could have acquired a similar platform. More than likely. I think yeah. they, they spent somewhere in the single-digit billions on creating Zelle. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile I – mean, to,
0: to acquire any of these businesses – I mean, to acquire PayPal would be – I mean, just one hundred and fifty billion dollars. Right. Even as
1: Square, and, I think it's, its market cap's around thirty billion. Yeah, to acquire it reasonably well. would be about fifty. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is a good point. I mean, it's a big acquisition. It would definitely go under the uh, the antitrust microscope. And and furthermore, you know, I mean, I, I I feel like if an acquisition like that happens, not even coming from the investors' perspective, I feel like consumers probably lose. I feel like big banks would take nimble tech companies like these and just screw them up. I mean, am I wrong?
1: Yeah, I don't think Square would be going in some of its same directions if a bank took it. Yeah. It would probably stay a payment processing company.
0: Probably innovation pro- comes to a grinding halt.
1: Well, they, they'd still produce their hardware. They'd still have their little tablets because that's what's working and that's what's in the bank's wheelhouse. They're not going to get creative with things like food delivery and, and, um, uh, stock else. like having I mean, a building out a, a Bitcoin app. Sure. Um, well, they don't so, want that regulatory burden.
0: <laughs> no, I'd imagine not. And it does it does feel like they are very interested in partnerships, right? I mean, you see more of these banks uh, focusing on these partnerships, whether it's with a Visa or a Mastercard or a PayPal or a Square. Um, stripe i mean there so yeah i mean to your point it's not like that money's going from one bucket to another uh, but but to see partnerships i think i would rather see partnerships than acquisitions i mean oftentimes acquisitions really look great because it's money in your pocket if you've got a company that's bought out at a premium but you have to consider What could have happened to that business over the course of the next five or ten years? And in in the case of good businesses, most of the time, those five or ten years can create a lot more value than you would have realized in just that one lump sum acquisition.
1: That's true, and you make a great point with partnerships. I mean, what's to stop, say, Bank of America from partnering with Square to create their deposit account? Yeah. Or something to that effect.
0: Well, we'll be looking for that stuff on the horizon, then. Uh, Real quick, thanks again to Zapier for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. You know, Matt, technology is moving fast these days as we're talking about, and if you're running your own business, think about the hours you spend moving information from one program to another, because software systems don't easily work together. Well, now they do automatically, thanks to Zapier. Zapier is built to automate your work connects all your business software, and handles work for you so you can focus on things that matter most. What matters most? Well, if you're running your own business, I'd say people and culture matter a whole lot, so maybe you want to focus on that. Go to zapier.com slash fool, connect the apps that you use, and let Zapier take it from there in minutes. And listen, I'm talking about apps that everyone is using every day in the world of business. Apps like Slack, Trello, Google Drive, Shopify, Salesforce, the list goes on. Right now through November, try Zapier free by going to zapier.com slash fool. That's Z-A-P-I-E-R.com slash fool for your free 14-day trial. Zapier.com slash fool. Okay, Matt, let's take a quick break here from... Deliberating all of these questions, and just read something from Twitter that someone wrote in last week. Uh, you know, we got a lot of good responses to this. What's the last stock you bought and why? I have a feeling that like every once in a while we'll be able to kick in what we're buying, but it sounds like a lot of listeners are having fun telling us what the last stock they bought was and why.
1: Yeah, I think we should do it like once a month, maybe every every other <laughs> month or something <laughs> you, like that. You know, our
0: stocks, you mean? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got Andy Courtright on Twitter at a uh, at a c o r t w r eight. So a court rate. Very clever there, Andy. Uh, Andy chimed in to let us know that his latest stock purchases of Intuitive Surgical and Teladoc uh, were because he needed more healthcare in his portfolio. And Andy, you know, listen, you're, you're an investor after my own heart. You know that healthcare is a market that I really like a lot next to the payment space. Um, uh, is one we've talked a lot about in, in our foolish, uh, on our foolish shows here through the years and intuitive surgical as well, just a phenomenal company. That's doing a lot of great things, um, to, to really make surgery, to make our healthcare system better. And, you know, I've spoken with a friend down in Georgia. He's a cardiologist down in Georgia, Chad Huggins, who's uh, said a lot of good things about intuitive surgical and the stuff that they're doing. Um, I suspect you'll be you'll be hearing a lot of great things from that company in the years to come. Not to mention Teladoc. What do you think, Matt?
1: Well, I actually um I need some healthcare exposure in my <laughs> portfolio. I think I only have one small position in a healthcare stock. Well, it sounds like Andy's got so, your answer right yeah, there. Yeah, and if Matt. anyone else has any ideas, feel free to tweet me at uh, @tmfmathguy.com or uh, @tmfmathguy uh, and of course. share your healthcare ideas. I need some.
0: We want to hear them. We want to hear the last stock you bought and why. So hey, tell us what it is. Get us uh, on the email at industryfocus@ or hit us up on Twitter, at MF Industry Focus. What was the last stock you bought and why? We want to know. Okay, Matt, uh, we wrap the week up normally with one to watch. So, let's get to that now. What is the stock you'll be watching here this coming week?
1: Well, my f- favorite thing to do is watch stocks that have been unfairly beaten up. You know. So, <laughs> I'm going to go with Roku this week. Um, oh, yeah! R-O-K-U. It is down 27% over the past week. It has been a tough month for Rogu. And it's even after that, it's tripled for the past year. Yeah. So let's put that in perspective. It's not <laughs> really down. Context, yeah. People who have been in it for a while are still doing pretty <laughs> well. But um, there's a, the first thing that sent it down, uh, Comcast announced it was offering its own streaming device. It used to cost $5 a month to its subscribers. Now it's going to be free. Um, nice. The The fear is that hardware costs are eventually going to zero for streaming. It's a reasonable
0: expectation, I'd right. say,
1: right? And um, Roku makes a lot of money off ad revenue. There's um, Now, there's concern. Uh, analysts note that, that that's going to come under pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still the sector leader. It's not the first time this has happened to Roku. Look about this time last year, it plunged in a similar manner and then tripled since then. Um and the streaming market it's big enough that you could have a dozen big winners. It's a big market. So,
0: it's a big market. We'll be talking about it a lot certainly in the the coming months here with uh, you know the entertainment industry and all of the, the ideas that we're pursuing in that in that realm. Uh, what kind of streaming device do you use? I have a Roku. You do? Okay, cool. So <laughs> I have, Roku have in Three rooms in my house. Really? Okay. We have a Fire. We have an Amazon Fire. Device, uh, Fire TV device. We only have one TV in the house. Like we have, you know, phones and all sorts of stuff, uh, but really only one big TV in the house. So we only have one streaming device. But I guess to your point about hardware being erased to the bottom there, ultimately going to zero, I mean, that's really what Roku is doing. They're incorporating that software into TVs now. So you just buy the TV Sans device, it's all rolled into one, right?
1: Right. I mean, and I have to believe that they've been selling their hardware at a loss. I would imagine. So yeah. whether they're selling a $100 piece of hardware for $30 or giving it away for free, really, <laughs> Isn't going to make or break them. It's really the ad revenue and what they can generate through their platform and having a presence in as you know millions of American homes. I like it. I like it. Okay. Well,
0: I'm going to go with Microsoft uh, ticker MSFT. Uh, mainly, less I mean, this is the biggest company in the world, essentially, right? I mean, it's still bigger than Apple, I believe. Um, but Microsoft just raised its dividend by 11. percent um, I think now they're they're yielding 51 cents per share per quarter. Uh, And along with that, they authorized another $40 billion in in share buybacks. Um, And to put that in context, they just pulled in $40 billion in free cash flow over the last year. So, you know, I mean, take that with a grain of salt. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, this is a company that I think is going to be on the forefront of everyone's lives for many, many years to come. And if I asked you Matt, when do you think? Okay, this is a good quiz here, but you can't cheat because we're right right here, right now. When? What year did Microsoft start paying its dividend?
1: Any ideas? Uh, I would have to say somewhere in the mid-90s, 96, 97? That's a
0: good guess. It was
1: 2003. Okay. I,
0: I would have guessed a little I bit earlier, a little too. But my point ultimately is that these guys still have a long way to go to be able to qualify for a, a dividend aristocrat status, which I imagine we'll one day see with them. Um, and, and, and honestly, I mean, I just, I, again, I, I feel like this is a company that, globally speaking, it's on operating systems everywhere. I mean, this is, we use it in in personal life and business life and everywhere in between. So, uh, hard to imagine a world without him, and I think as far as dividend stocks, it's one of the better ones out there. Uh, We're going to wrap things up here, Matt, but before we do, tell the listeners what you have uh, on tap for the event this week. Why did you come all the
1: way up here from South Carolina? I am here for the new uh, real estate site, Million Acres, that we've been talking about. we have a premium service through that called Mogul, nice. so these are some of our premium members, so we're trying to let them know about our real estate side and what we have, what value we have to offer, and I'm giving a presentation with Maddie A. Tomorrow, uh, on Tuesday. Tuesday. Good. Well, I think I'm going to have to attend
0: that presentation because I'm here doing my augmented reality presentation on Monday, which means I should have a
1: little free time on Tuesday.
0: Maybe I'll come in there and uh... – Hear what you guys have to say.
1: Please do. It'll be my first lecture since I stopped teaching college, so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to being in front of a room with a PowerPoint again. It's um, it's been a while.
0: I'm sure you'll nail it. Looking forward to it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. A big thanks this week to our production guru Dan Boyd for having us set up here in the hotel and making sure that this show happened this week for you and for us. For Matt Frankel and Jason Moser, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.